PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I am Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Dr. Michael Post is going to talk about Morton's neuroma. Michael is a physical therapist, diplomat in the McKenzie Method, and he has published two research papers related to Martin's neuroma, titled Mechanical Diagnosis and Therapy and Martin's Neuroma, a Case Series, and Mechanical Diagnosis and Therapy and Martin's Neuroma, a Case Report. I hope you enjoy the show. Range Master has been specializing in professional grade at home and in clinic rehab tools for almost 30 years. All of their products are available through distributors at rangemasterpt.com and on Amazon. So either you stock items or refer patients to buy online, they've got you covered. One thing I love about Range Master, they offer all physical therapists free samples. Get yours today by going to rangemasterpt.com and click Get a Sample. Hi, Michael. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? Hey, Mar Mariana. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your career, and how did you get to where you are right now? Yeah, so without uh, getting too boring with the details, uh, physical therapist, currently treating in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a large outpatient hospital system. So I've mostly been an outpatient hospital. I graduated from Ithaca College in 2013, uh, doctorate of physical therapy, and uh, took a trip down to New York City, originally kind of small uptown boy in upstate New York, and uh, got a bit of a culture shock there for quite a few years. And, uh, and he had Laura Mannering on um, your most recent episode, um, at least from what I've heard. And uh, her and I both spent time together down at IMC for a year. And uh, that was a great experience um, being in the private practice world. And then, uh, and then both my wife and I and our family moved back up to Philadelphia. And so getting back in the hospital outpatient setting, mostly for that kind of academic exposure and, uh, and enjoying it so far, you know, post-COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And it was Laura that recommended me. So I'm very glad she mentioned your name. And then I started looking at your uh, the articles and papers you published and about Morton's neuroma. So let's talk about that. Um, so what is Morton's neuroma and how it can be diagnosed magically? Yeah, Mariana, have, have, you, uh, have you treated anybody with Morton's neuroma? I did in the past prior to my McKenzie experience. So I never test with McKenzie to see the, 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 the results. Yeah. Pre, pre McKenzie. I've, I've talked to a lot of clinicians and um, quite a few have said that they've treated a lot of patients with uh, plantar forefoot pain. Um, not so much that carry the specific medical diagnosis, Morton's neuroma. So you've probably seen some sort of variation or variant of it, or maybe, you know, maybe a true Morton's neuroma that's in there. Um, but Morton's neuroma essentially is a, um, a, uh, a neuroma or enlargement and irritation of the plantar cutaneous nerves. Um, thinking a little bit more um, biomechanically, it's where the medial and lateral plantar cutaneous nerves join in that um, lateral, kind of lateral-ish plantar forefoot. So typically or most often between um, the digits three and four. 
Um, and uh, so essentially it's a weight bearing problem. Um, I actually treated a patient today, evaluated, you cut me a good time, evaluated a patient. My first uh, eval today was a patient referred over from a podiatrist with Morton's neuroma. Um, and it's probably been, I don't know, maybe a couple months since I've seen my last one. They still don't come in super often. Um, but a uh, patient came in, I kind of cringed a little bit, you know, saying it's kind of one of those like self-limiting um, diagnoses, kind of like lumped under like plantar fasciitis and that sort of thing. Um, but essentially a weight bearing, um, restrictive type, um, enlargement of the sensory cutaneous nerves in the foot. And it, uh, will send, um, like burning, lancing, um, pressure type pains, um, and, uh, sometimes radiating pains into the toes of the foot. Um, kind of think of a, along the lines of like a carpal tunnel syndrome. And uh, eventually if it progresses and the nerve degrades enough, um, it'll turn into a numbness type sensation of the foot or in the toes that they're affected. Okay. So how is that diagnosed by the doctor? Do they do image exams? How does it work? Yeah, most often. Um, yeah, you, if, uh, If you dig into the literature a little bit, there is a um, clinical, pri uh, clinical practice guidelines for podiatrists that look at this algorithm. And, um, and basically, uh, I'm not, I can't speak for a doctor, of course, or a podiatrist, um, but you know, receiving the patient, hearing this uh, pain with weight bearing, alleviated with rest, maybe alleviated with massage. Uh, most typically, you'll see a presentation of a middle-aged-ish female is the most common uh, population that we're dealing with here. And um, probably more uh, due to the restrictive shoes or kind of wearing heels or um, lifts or um, any sort of tight toe box. Um, and so it's some of those symptoms uh, come up in the history there. And uh, there's a few clinical tests that you can use to diagnose Morton's neuroma. Um, I don't know how often they use uh, the whole kind of spattering of tests that are available. Um, you have about uh, maybe four or five of them um, that are consistently used. Um, the most popular one being um, a Mulder's click test. Um, so that's kind of the squeezing the toe box or the forefoot and then uh, clicking between or squeezing between the, um, the distal um, the distal metatarsal phalangeal joints at the foot. Um, so most often if it's severe, if there's a big enough neuroma, you can get a palpable click, which is kind of what goes into the name. Um, but most often with a lot of these clinical tests, you're just looking for reproduction of their familiar pain. Um, so after clinical testing, um, if you send the patient away for MRIs use most often, um, there's less skill re required for accurate diagnosis. And, um, and ultrasounds available as well. So largely they're just looking for a cutoff, um, above a certain size. I think it's uh, five millimeters of uh, neuroma size, um, is considered clinically significant for an enlarged nerve. Um, and then if that's paired with the clinical presentation, the four foot pain, then they say, yep, there you go. You've got it. Morton's neuroma. Great. And then this patient comes to you with this diagnose of Morton neuroma. So what are the tests that you do, clinical tests and signs that you are looking uh, to, to assess and diagnosing these conditions? And hopefully they come to me. Um, it's been a lot of legwork yeah. so far, even. Um, I think it's maybe just been three, four years now. 
And I, um, I think most recent count is close to maybe 20 patients or something like that. So not a huge, not a huge number of patients are really rolling in, even though, um, it's, it's been a lot of reaching out to very specific podiatrists for, um, for referrals, but, um, hopefully the patient comes into us and, um, you know, in, in the clinical exam is pretty straightforward, pretty typical, um, trying to establish patient rapport through, you know, history taking, um, find out my information that confirms I have, um, uh, like an Epic system that links with the hospital that we work with. So I can get a lot of the basic background information, but you know, mostly just kind of confirming a lot of that information and then also trying to get and feel out the patient a little bit as far as what their um, fears are, some of their worries are, their concerns with the rehab, you know, trying to uh, find hopefully strings to pull later on um, as I'm establishing that therapeutic alliance. Um, and then, you know, once we get through the history, which, you know, most often it's pretty typical, you know, weight bearing type pain, um, although you shouldn't, you find curveballs and you shouldn't see things like pain with rest, um, which happens maybe in, in a really inflamed um, presentation, or also, you know, if there's that inflammatory component, or if there's also something else going on, you know, as you saw in the papers, you refer to as a joint derangement um, that may or may not respond to repeated movements. Um, and then, uh, you know, after getting through that characteristic history, um, taking a look at the movement exam. Um, so getting a little bit closer to the foot than maybe I would have normally otherwise before starting to see these patients a little bit more often and, uh, looking at, uh, toe extension, flexion, range of motion, pretty typical. Maybe you look at, uh, strength around the ankle, um, and then getting into a repeated movements exam, um, looking at, um, after clinical tests, of course, um, to establish baselines. Um, but looking at repeated movements exam is kind of the primary component of the examination. And you do active and then passive because I bet it's hard to do the active. <laughs> yeah, motor control is a little limited, you know, in our feet and our toes. I think that's a good point. I'm a little bit less patient in the extremities. And so I'm jumping to manual, manual pretty quickly. I know, uh, you know, it's uh, McKenzie, um, McKenzie bias might be, you know, hands off and less necessary. But, you know, especially when we're talking to the toes, I'm getting my hands on right away. Yeah, it just kind of lets lets you uh, uh, lets you and the patient get used to you know you having their hands your hands on on their feet and uh, um, and getting them used to having their joints moved a little bit because um, a lot of times our feet you know our feet like our hands we're you know very protective of them they mean a lot to us and uh, something happens to somebody's feet and their whole life is you know turned upside down so um, you don't want anybody guarding during your assessment so yeah. And do you use the clinical tests as well that you just mentioned, the squeeze test, the, the click? Yeah, so the big ones are, um, and there's a cluster um, for anybody who wants to dig through the literature, um, Owens, and I think it's 2012, um, talked about this cluster of tests um, to look at um, predictive likelihood ratios as far as what the likelihood it is of having a true Morton's neuroma, which you know presents varying degrees of value. You know, if you use the whole cluster, but um, you've got a squeeze test, you've got a Tenell's test. Um, there's a digital nerve stretch test that's available. Um, Web space tenderness. Um, there's the Mulder's click, um, as well. And, um, and there's a, for differential diagnosis, you might use like a drawer test, um, cause you'll find a lot of patients that are referred with plantar forefoot pain. Um, and this is kind of the, the point of the research is, um, it's hard to differentially diagnose and you get lots of patients with just joint pain. 
Um, and so a drawer test is useful because it's not necessarily or traditionally used in the kind of that cluster of Morton's neuroma. And, um, and so if you're reproducing familiar symptoms with either, you know, drawer of the toe or whether it's like compression of the joint with flexion extension or distraction with flexion extension of the joint, the toe joint, um, you know, then you're thinking maybe not a Morton's neuroma in this, in this case. Um, but a lot of those clinical tests are very, very useful. One for patient education, letting them know that you're there assessing the condition that they're there for you to look at and that you're knowledgeable about the condition as well. Um, but then they're also useful baseline test retests. Um, I've had lots of patients that come in with full toe joint range of motion, mobility, um, and maybe the clinical test is really their only solid baseline. Yeah. And my next question would be exactly about the these differential diagnostics so process. So how does uh, this differential diagnostic process of patients with metatarsalgia, oh my God, this word, <laughs> looks like. <laughs> Try metatarsal phalangeal three times. <laughs> with my accent and then, yeah, probably everybody's laughing at me right now. Yeah. But <laughs> So how does this process look like? How do you do this, this rationale of differentiating and what are the, other conditions that are very similar that you can kind of get lost. Yeah. So, you know, and I try to lay everything out in front of the patient. I've, I've seen a few physicians practice through like some shadowing recently, and I've seen a lot of like shared decision-making process used as far as the patient and clinician interaction. So I've tried to adapt that a lot. And, you know, once you get through the history and the clinical examination, a lot of times and it goes through, you know, taking just your basic range of motion assessment of the joints um, and um, doing some manual muscle screening, um, maybe some nerve length, uh, nerve length testing and lumbar range of motion screening. I'll just lay it out to the patient in, in many cases and say, like, look, this is what we're looking at. Here's your here's your odds or your likelihood to have you know pain coming from this location or this location, or this is one place that we can start. And you know, where do you want to start at this point? And just kind of let the patient guide me a little bit as far as where you want to start the clinical examination. Um, so if I'm just using this most recent. Um, example, the patient I evaluated today um, had a history of left SI joint pain and she had ridiculous symptoms. She's actually a home health PT. Um, so she, she kind of had a good awareness of her own body and, you know, mentioned that, you know, when I'm walking, I also, not only do I have forefoot pain, but I also have left calf tightness. Um, and she knew she had SI joint issues before in the past on the same side. Um, and then she also, during examination, had a, a positive slump test and a straight leg raise. Um, so I put it right out in front of her and said, like, look, this is what we can look at. We can either you know, start moving the toes today um, and get you moving and try to find out if there's any preference to movement, you know, or we can say, yeah, maybe, you know, and I kind of laid it out to her, like, there is nerve tension here and you do have a history of back pain. And, you know, this is what we're seeing here. Is it worth testing out for, you know, a few days, you know, whether or not there's any contribution from the back and, and she picked back. So that's kind of where we went, um, you know, and that's part of the differential diagnosis process is, is like getting patient willingness to participate in a full exam because that can certainly skew things. You know, and if, if I jump to, you know, one area of the body or another without kind of getting patient consent from that process, then that can skew the results of the clinical testing pretty quick. Patient can get frustrated, um, start giving you kind of rash, quick answers about how they're feeling in response to manual interventions or range of motion uh, interventions like repeated movements. Um, 
And so, you know, try to find the path of least resistance there. Um, so for her, you know, one of the differential diagnoses there is, you know, low back referral. Um, so in that case, you know, I, I use, you know, repeated movements of the spine with or without manual therapy and, you know, look at my baselines for the spine and also, you know, for the foot. Um, and, uh, you know, also, you know, we're looking at whether it's a joint, uh, just kind of going off of your differential diagnosis there, you know, do we have joint derangement or, um, some sort of directional bias, um, joint pain, um, that's available, or, um, we talked about kind of a little bit, uh, peripheral nerve entrapment. You know, if you have a true Morton's neuroma, are they getting ridiculous symptoms because that nerve's actually tight there in and around, um, the plantar surface of the forefoot. Um, if you look at the clinical practice guidelines, uh, for podiatry, they also recognize chronic pain or sensitization. Um, we're dealing with, um, some of the clinical baselines are using a dolorimeter or kind of like a pressure algometer. Um, so we're just dealing with like sensitized pressure to the forefoot that has nothing to do with, you know, necessarily joint, uh, mechanics or movement or, um, lumbar nerve tension or anything from that regard. Um, so. Okay. And thinking about the foot, uh, plantar fasciitis, do you see any relation with that? Or is that easy to get confused? Um, or do the patients respond similar when they have their problems when you test? Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. Um, you know, is, is there sensitivity to your plantar surface? Is that related also to, you know, potentially plantar fasciitis? I've only seen maybe one or two patients that have incompetent symptoms going on um, where you end up kind of running on with some, some road bumps during like functional recovery sometimes, or maybe they've had a history of plantar fasciitis before in the past may or may not have an active episode, or I have, you know, I've had patients refer to, I don't know if it's any greater frequency than any other patient population, but they're like, Oh, my plantar fasciitis. Like I've had this issue years ago and, you know, I feel my plantar fascia pain coming on when I'm, you know, engaging in these functional exercises or something like that. Um, the Achilles ends up being a little bit of an issue sometimes as well. Um, but it all kind of makes sense because you're dealing with kind of a, a posterior chain type pain. Um, you're also dealing potentially with chronic disability or functional disuse. And if a patient's pain improves, um, and they start changing their functional level or activity, maybe they start walking or doing more in a short period of time, you know, they might start feeling some of these pains in other areas. So, yeah, so it makes sense. Just take a look at the whole posterior part of your legs and foot to see if they have tension and what are the signs that would make you think that the pain comes from the back? Um, the first patient example um, that I could think of was, um, you know, pain at rest or pain sitting. We talked earlier, I mentioned and made a comment about kind of that inflammatory component. Um, a lot of patients will attribute to just inflammation or having some sort of itis um, in their foot um, just because they feel pain at rest. Um, but if you look at, um, whether or not a patient has a diurnal pattern, you know, maybe their pain's a little bit worse in the morning, gets better throughout the day, which doesn't really make sense for foot pain, especially if you're on your feet a lot, um, you know, or onset or new onset of pain while sitting, you know, so everybody can aggravate a condition and then sit at rest and take a while to calm down, you know, but 
can you sit down at rest without pain and then start having pain all of a sudden? Um, and that kind of draws a little bit of uh, um, some attention to the low back area at that regard. You know, and it's up to you or the clinician at that point, if you want to mess around with posture at that point, if they do or don't have symptoms to see if you can modulate their presentation at that time or kind of use it in that collection. Um, nerve tension is usually a part of my examination in, uh, in most examinations, unless uh, contraindicated for whatever reason. Um, and so if there's some sort of um, ipsilateral asymmetry of nerve tension, then that, you know, potentially is worth exploring depending on how everything else looks. Yeah, it makes sense. What, what do you think, Mariana? Do you go right to the low back after the exam with Richard Rosedale's research and, um, and the screen the spine movement? Or, um, or do you take Scott Herbowie's side here and say, you know, if it's a 50, 50 coin flip and, uh, you know, and it's either going to come from the foot or it's going to come from the back. Where do you, where do you go first? So I tend usually to clear the spine first. I know it's hard sometimes with the patients with the, because they don't understand or they don't want, but I remember one of my courses I did in Brazil and was recalling Dave's and then he was, I remember him saying, always clear the spine first. So I kind of got this idea. So um, even that sometimes I got a patient that he didn't have any back pain, any symptom, anything at all. It was just foot pain. Um, and then I was like, well, let's just clear the spine first because that's kind of my routine. And then his foot pain was gone by just doing the, 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 the lumbar assessment and and doing the repetitive movements. So I kind of tend to always clear the spine first. Unless the patient's super resistant, then I'll, I'll do the assessment in the part on the extremity that, that is the pain, and then try to explain why it's important to clear the spine. So it depends kind of like on the, if the patient agrees with that, but that's usually what I do. Um, and then I remember I was going to ask you, so in your experience, what is the percentage of patients that you see that have this foot pain or this diagnosis of Morton's neuroma that is coming from the back? Well, if the, the current, my current guesstimate is somewhere around like, I, and I tell the physicians this to the podiatrists that I'm working with. Um, you know, if you look at, this is consistent with some of the research related to asymptomatic positives of Morton's neuroma and people's feet is somewhere around 40%. And that seems to be about the same number of people who respond in a very short period of time or kind of diagnostically appropriate for physical therapy intervention somewhere between that like 35 and 50% range. So if out of that, you know, out of that group, those 10 patients with foot pain, if, if, uh, if maybe four or five of them do well with physical therapy, I would say probably two of them maybe have some relationship with their low back. Um, not, not quite half of the ones that actually respond, you know, somewhere between the one or two. Yeah, but that's still a big number. It's important to test, right? I think you should. Might, depending on next week, uh, what happens with this patient, you may have a different number. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so let's talk about this study that you published. Um, so the arrangement syndrome, syndrome has been classified in a limited number of cases, right? It was like, I think it was five of 13, if I'm mm -hmm. not wrong. Um, 
So if it was not arrangement, what would you recommend therapists to do? Yeah, and that's that in some cases is the most important question to answer. Because if you get the patient better, great. You know, if you mismanage the other patients that are on the table, you're still potentially mismanaging half or you know, more of them uh, in some cases. Um, some of them are going to be appropriate for injections or con back to consult with a podiatrist. That's probably what they wanted to do with the patient in the first place is inject or a neurolysis or uh, take the nerve out. Um, I find a lot of these patients are sent over because they're particularly adverse to having some sort of advanced procedures done or invasive procedures. So, um, so, you know, working with a podiatrist then at that point to say like, look, if they don't do well in physical therapy, if they're not going to respond, you know, to manual therapies or repeated movements, if they're not a derangement, um, in that regard, um, or, a you know, peripheral nerve entrapment, then, uh, then they will come back and, you know, maybe they'll get some better education to say like, look, it's worthwhile getting that injection at this point. So that's, you know, that's one part of the population there. Um, in the other, the other part of the population, you're going to have patients with chronic pain or sensitization, um, uh, allodynia more or less. Um, and you know, whether or not you have an algometer or a dolorimeter on, on hand to be able to work through that education process and desensitization process to improve their tolerance. Um, and then, you know, and then there's another, uh, population who may not necessarily fit into a clear category and doesn't necessarily respond to, um, repeated movements in one way or another, and just may need more traditional interventions and stretching and mobilizations to the ankle joint to loosen, you know, loosen things up and get them, you know, get them used to movement and activity and, you know, alter their pain response. So, um, out, outside of the, you know, the derangement and the, you know, the other, other category, you've got that, um, dysfunctional category, that peripheral nerve entrapment, you know, that may, you know, may also get a consult with the, um, with the podiatrist while they're waiting for their symptoms to calm down, but, you know, may need repetitive stretching type activities to, you know, loosen, um, adaptively shortened tissues. So. Okay. And then I remember looking at the, the webinar that you did with the McKenzie Institute that it was, um, manual therapy. I think it was, that was like previously reported in studies that it was not with by physical therapists, but was like manual therapy. I don't know if it was like chiropractors. I don't, I don't remember exactly. So how do you feel that these patients respond to like mobilizations, manual therapy, and these type of things? Um, yep. And it was, uh, it was chiropractors that initially started that movement and, um, and podiatrists. Um, there's a particular like toe distraction, dorsal glide manipulation um, that they used for um, pressure algometry to test and retest to see if they were responders. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so my general experience is they fare well. Um, I'm a little bit biased because, again, as I said earlier, is I kind of go in with hands first in this population because, you know, getting a patient to actively move their joints is somewhat limiting for some regard. In, in earlier on, maybe I had patients use overpressure initially and kind of hands off and maybe they do like an unweighted um, heel raise modification um, to get that, you know, semi-loaded toe extension, or maybe they do a kind of a toes curled push into the floor um, type modification. 
modification um, to get toe flexion as a repeated movement. But um, again, as, as it stands, you know, in the whole process, if you want to be efficient and gather as much information through an exam to help the patient out and still get to some, you know, valuable time to uh, perform repeated movements in a way, you know, then I, I'll go hands-on first. So, you know, the patient by that point is either um, appreciating the movements or the activities, or we're getting some answers or, you know, or we're, or we're sending home with, uh, test movements that mimic any of those manual therapies. But, um, you know, as far as, um, using repeated movements with other mobilizations of foot, I, I tend not to pair them up too, you know, too much unless they have, you know, unless they've already shown promise to respond to some other repeated movement and it can be used adjunctively a little bit. Yeah. So if they, if you test them and they don't, don't respond, you don't find a direction of preference, um, then you would try to just give exercise to slowly, um, uh, get the tissue used to the movement and all of that. Uh, or would you go ahead and try to do some mobilizations or try both and see what works? What usually is your rationale of the treatment if they don't respond? to the, the, the repetitive movements. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so those repetitive movements would be at the MTP joints, right? Um, most often as a, as a referred pain. Um, from some of the work uh, that I did with the fellowship training up at Damon College, um, we go a little bit more in depth with some um, ankle-specific mobilizations or maybe um, kind of revisiting probably some things that I had forgotten through some of my MDT training um, process, kind of moved away from that. So kind of moved back in that direction a little bit more, you know, looking at your tailor mobilizations, looking at the midfoot inversion, eversion, um, looking at your cuboid and navicular mob mobility. Um, one patient in particular um, that I treated uh, probably about four or five months ago, um, actually was having her um, plantar foot pain referred from her cuboid, um, which was kind of a familiar pain reproduction when I was mobilizing kind of that lateral midfoot. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, so a lot of that clinical decision-making is just made based on their other mobility. Um, so are you looking at, you know, the soleus length or the ankle dorsiflexion flexibility relative to what's necessary. Um, you know, there's some good research that looks at leg stiffness and this is a weight bearing problem. So you'll see runners with this. Um, it looks at leg stiffness um, predictors um, and found that ankle dorsiflexion mobility and great toe extension mobility were your greatest predictors for increased leg stiffness when running. Um, so that's my own personal bias. And I'll you know, double check and make sure that the, um, the mobility there at the great toe extension and the ankle dorsiflexion is, is uh, enough to complete the functional task. Um, so, you know, use your own clinical judgment from that perspective, yeah. but I definitely, definitely try to pair those with uh, functional mobility exercises um, and again, trying to look for, um, other forms of a response-based assessment that's not specific to repeated movements of just the metatarsal phalangeal joints. You can still get a patient to walk and mobilize their ankle and, you know, have them retest whatever baseline and, you know, see if there's any change. Yeah. So I remember reading about functional recovery exercises. So why would you include on that, uh, that type of treatment? Would you just gradually expose them to exercises and see what they tolerate? So how um, that program looks like? Yeah, and it depends on what they're interested in or kind of what level of activity are they, um, you know, 
amateur athletes? Are they um, just looking to get back into the gym? Are they um, office workers? Um, that sort of thing. But, you know, most often there's some sort of ambulation restriction, whether it's a return to walking program or an interval return to run program when their symptoms allow it. Um, and then looking at, um, you know, functional exercise that's going to help, uh, push the patient confidence, really, um, lunges, squats, heel raises, toe walking, heel walking, stair climbing, um, and then you'll feel out the patient then at that point to find out, you know, where they're having difficulties that you really need to key in on or target in on, you know, from a holistic perspective um, to make sure that the patient's rounding out their program and kind of getting their home program to address whatever, you know, remaining limitations on their own. Yeah, no, that's great because I think that's the difficult part because it's easy when we get a derangement and then if you don't, it's like, well, now what? So just having these options and ideas of what you can use on your treatment is very helpful. Yeah. Um, and the, if you get like a true mortal neuroma that you mentioned before, usually do they respond to repetitive movement or you find that they, they don't respond because they are like a true uh, mortal neuroma? Um, you know, at first I, I probably thought a little bit like a fish out of water when I was examining these patients and, um, doing repeated movements in the office. Um, so I would say, you know, for sure, don't, don't put it past, uh, that you might send the patient away at a, at an exam, not necessarily experiencing a huge change, um, but usually over a week or so of, um, end range loaded type stretching, you know, you may find a, a positive response. Um, classified as a derangement. Um, so, um, you know, again, the, the numbers are there as far as kind of about that 40 or 50% to see some sort of symptomatic change, you know, really for that examination, you're looking to kind of target in on just having the right region, you know, making sure that the patient's leaving at the exam, you know, targeting either the back or the foot, um, you know, with a particular reason. Um, and that gives you the best chance at visit two when they come back to have some sort of change. You should either make them better or worse in most cases um, in, a, in an immediate response to the exercise. And you can kind of communicate with the patient on where to go from there, um, depending on what the response is. Yeah, and I always see the patients is no response is the worst possible outcome. <laughs> if a patient comes back, visit two, and they're no different, um, you should find some sort of change because um, that at least tells us that we're moving the right area. Yeah. And so let's say if you have this peripheral neuroentrepayment, if I'm saying this word right. So do you think that you can change that mechanically through our repetitive movements? Like you can, like the nerve can be like release the pressure of the nerve through these repetitive movements. That's kind of the theory uh, uh, behind. So I'm just trying to get like here thinking about the, the, anatomy and like the the explanation of why the the repetitive movements would help if it's really like a neural compression so mechanically we are compressing the nerve would be that the idea yeah it's a so it's a peripheral nerve entrapment and then so if that you know i, I tend to think a little bit kind of like a tr um, like a trigger you know trigger finger more or less um that, that nerve um through the um, the longitudinal arch at that forefoot um, is getting compressed 
um, from the swelling there. Um, and, you know, ultimately it may be the, the plantar pressure on the, um, at the distal metatarsals that's causing the pain or one of the other theories, as far as, you know, what occurs related to the Morton's neuroma is, um, the flexor digitorum tensioning that's created on the nerves through gait or through walking. Um, so are you loosening and kind of stretching, um, uh, freeing up some of that nerve tension that occurs? And that's probably our mechanistic reasoning as far as what's happening for a patient. Um, or is there some sort of, maybe there's no change in length because that's been shown in a lot of other areas of the body that we're not actually changing length all too much, you know, but more of a, um, neurophysiological change in pain threshold. Um, so I'd love to have a study where I get, you know, 50 consecutive patients in the door. Um, so I could at least see all of them and, and all I see right now or all I've seen are kind of that select few that I'm allowed to see from the podiatrists that are referred over. Um, but thus far, I've only seen, I think one true, um, peripheral nerve entrapment out of the about 20 that I've seen so far. Um, and, uh, you know, that patient had a very clean characteristic presentation of, you know, when loaded and when plantar flexing. And extending through those toes in a weight-bearing position, he would get a very clean, clear shooting sensation through his toe. Um, and he was a musician who traveled and he did not want surgery for any reason. So he was willing to go on board with stretching for a few months. And throughout that few months, the pain got less and less. Um, at the end of the day, he ended up still feeling like he was you know, walking on a cotton ball a bit. He still had some pressure between his metatarsal heads. Um, but the same shooting sensation wasn't there. So is that decreased nerve tension potentially, um, kind of like doing a, you know, ulnar nerve glide or a median nerve glide or sciatic nerve glide, or, um, so we have more flexibility potentially in a weight bearing or a loaded position, or is it, um, just a lack of that, you know, pain firing response? Um, I don't, yeah. I don't think I know at least. Yeah. But you're giving some relief. So that's something right better than having to do something more drastically some other intervention um surgical intervention on anything like that so i think that's been super beneficial um yeah the patients you know ultimately if they fail pt then um, injections may help and that saves the nerve but the other options are neurolysis or resection you know, and so they take away that part of the nerve and ultimately they'll lose sensation to half of two digits. Um, again, kind of similar to what you might see with the hand and some of the cutaneous distribution. Um, you know, so ultimately then, you know, I say to patients, look, even if you have a peripheral nerve entrapment and, um, and this isn't going to respond in any sort of rapid manner, we're not going to make it worse through the stretching. And it's sometimes worth playing out over um, at least a few weeks to see if you're going to get any change um, to the repetitive stretching program, um, because the other options are take the nerve out and lose sensation. Um, a profound thing I heard um, related to brachial plexus um, repair um, at a at a surgical conference that I went to to see some um, surgeons uh, talk about different procedures that were kind of up and coming, 
and um, they do these amazing things um, throughout this, uh, the brachial plexus to repair and return motor function. And, um, and the biggest thing that patients often can't get over is just the sensory loss um, that ends up happening after these nerve type procedures. And so um, at least a big takeaway out of that from a PT standpoint is, is just kind of reflecting on the fact that like you lose sensation and, you know, it's a really big deal. Um, for a lot of people, yeah. what yeah. losing sensation of a couple toes, you know, that are not your big toe may or may not be important, but, you know, at least considering, cause patients may not necessarily know about that when they go into a procedure. Yeah, absolutely. And just, I'm curious to ask you, what would, what is the most common direction that you see the patients responding to if it's a derangement? I, I used to try to make, um, I think it's, I think it's split. Um, but I used to try to make rationale after the first few patients that I saw were actually flexion direction. And I was like, Oh, it makes perfect sense. You're walking and you're extending your toes, you know, thousands of times a day. So of course, flexion is going to be the reducing, uh, common movement for the foot. Um, and then I think maybe the, the next few I saw were extension based. Um, so I, I really think it's split. Um, I think there's potentially more variety as far as what you can do. You can do a little bit more weight bearing through a, an extended toe. So maybe applying a little bit more force and getting better to end range, you know, is available with extension based movements, uh, with the foot. Um, again, any, I think my articles are open access. You can, um, you can check those out and kind of look at some of the procedures that are available on uh, PubMed. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to go 50, 50 here. It's, it's gotta be fairly, <laughs> fairly symmetrical. Because you also said like the tension on the flexors. Now I'm just here thinking if you have tension on the flexors, the extension would make sense because you're kind of like stretching the flexors. So that would be another way to think if, you know, if it's 50, 50, you could say the flexors are tired are tight, or you can say they are walking extension. So flexion would be the, the movement that they don't do, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. If they were, if they were extension responders, they're doing extension all day. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Then they have t the flexors are too tight. I don't know why, but oh, <laughs> 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 uh, great. So that's all very good. Um, before we go to the, Final questions here. Do you have anything else that you want to share about the study that you did or anything curious that you found or anything else that you would like to share? Yeah, just taking a slow history and gathering more information is always helpful with this population. Um, before working with patients with Morton's neuroma, and I do tend to see a little bit more feet now, but I you know, didn't see tons and tons of feet. Um, and uh, slowing myself down and taking the taking a different look at the the foot and um, and gathering information from various components of the foot is definitely I would say helpful because you'll find the addition the occasional curveball will, who will have a reproduction of symptoms with um, midfoot pronation or supination or you may find out maybe not relevant to their symptoms but you know stiffness that the patient cares about it uh, the ankle joint. Um, that they also want addressed and it may or may not be related to their symptoms. So um, we don't see a lot of hands as physical therapists, or at least I don't where I work. Um, and obviously we see a lot of those commonalities between the hand and the foot. And so it kind of took me a little bit of time to slow down through that examination process and, you know, make sure that I'm getting all the information rather than just kind of jumping in and just flexing and extending toes without really looking and appreciating some of the movement qualities of the foot. 
Yeah. And it was very nice that now you did a study, published a study. So we have at least something to show doctors uh, that we can have some results and hopefully get more referrals because um, it looks like they don't refer too much for PTs, right? Because the people have these problems. It's not just that we are not seeing them. So it would be very helpful, as you said, to have more patients to be able to test more and, and, and find out more things. So, Yeah, Morton's yeah. neuroma is the second most common peripheral neuropathy behind uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, so it's, uh, it's up there on the list. And I think uh, podiatrists see that more than most of anything else diagnosis wise. So if you, uh, if you have a contact with a podiatrist and uh, you brush shoulders with them a little bit, find out what they think. Um, it helps to sell, kind of sell your timeline to the podiatrist and the communication that helps too. not just, you know, the repeated movements aspect. They want to know, you know, how they're going to hear from you as a clinician and what information they're going to get back from you. And, uh, you know, that will hopefully kind of help, uh, help them not kind of keep the patients kind of in their guard more or less. Cause again, we're not, we're not seeing a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. I met one Friday, Friday, no last Wednesday. So I was just thinking about, I'm going to send these articles and talk to her to see if she would be open to that. But that, I think that's important. And we have something at least to base ourselves off and, and show them. So I think that's great. Um, Michael, what is your favorite resource of information? Do you have papers that you like, something, books, anything that you recommend? Yeah, I think that's an ever-evolving door as far as what I'm looking at you know, at the current time. Interestingly, um, over the past few months, because I, um, I can borrow books from our uh, medical library, and, uh, and so I've been reading through some Stuart McGill texts um, just to find out some more information. I'm not necessarily interested in taking any courses anytime soon, but I just kind of want to peek into the, um, the process from that standpoint. So, um, you know, the Stuart McGill texts were actually really interesting to read through. Um, there's a few things in particular that I appreciated. Um, namely, he does kind of provocative testing, which I appreciate to find out from a different diagnostic construct. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and then some of the information that he has related to uh, strength and conditioning took me back to my CSCS days um, and training days to find out a little bit more how he approaches kind of high level athletes. Um, so there's some nuggets of information there that's really useful. And while I, the name of your study, so people can check it out. <laughs> there's uh so there's two of them um one of them is uh i think it's mdt and morton's neuroma case report um and then the other one is uh mechanical diagnosis and therapy and morton's neuroma case series pretty pretty boring bland names um but if you go to Pep, uh, pubmed again i think they're free access through pmc or something like that and uh, if you just look up um morton's neuroma physical therapy uh post um then it'll come up um, yeah. there's another, um, there's another PT, um, article that was published in 2016 related to Morton's neuroma too. That would be kind of the three that are out there. 
I think those are the only three for physical therapy. Um, and the, the original one was SALT in uh, S-A-U-L-T um, in uh, uh, 2016. Um, and that actually used more of like a traditional chiropractic manipulation for the toe. Um, so kind of nice to have, you know, a range of information. Um, you could even look up the, the other case series related to the chiropractic manipulations that are available if you're going to approach your podiatrist. Yeah. And it's crazy that we don't have them in. I had no idea why I started looking at the, the, the topic. And then I found out, I was like, that's crazy. I had no idea. Um, that was so little. And they are free. I looked it up, so I got them. So people can just find it online. Uh, and what would be advice that you would give to clinicians that are starting their careers? Uh, first and foremost, listen to the patient. Um, I think that's the most important thing. Um, I reflect uh, often back to uh, some graduate training and, and one of my mentors was all about mindfulness. Um, and, uh, and I think that goes in big, a, big, uh, a big way towards listening appropriately to patients and trying to be um, attentive and focused. Um, and that hopefully you know, helps establish the, um, the best connection with the patient as you're uh, going through that treatment process. And um, I'll throw in two words of advice, uh, shared decision-making model. Um, I think it goes a long way as well, trying to help uh, that clinician-patient relationship um, and guide through that um, clinical diagnostic process. I know early on as a MDT practitioner, um, sometimes I was uh, fitting square pegs into round holes and trying to get through examinations that maybe should have been structured otherwise. Um, and uh, slowing myself down and um, talking to the patient a little bit more and trying to find out you know, how to meet their needs, I think hopefully helps me capture a few other patients that I definitely lost early on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what personal qualities and abilities that you think are important to become a successful PT? Um, in, for me, it's, um, I, I guess, intrinsic feedback and critique, um, you know, always being able to, again, kind of slow yourself down, think about each patient as often as possible, um, give yourself your own feedback about, you know, what you'd like to do differently, you know, in next time in the same scenario and, um, try to make small goals to, um, to change that. Um, so, um, I know we're all caught up in, um, in patient care, um, sometimes burnout or, um, overstretched then as far as our resources available. Um, but whenever you can, even while you're documenting, just to slow yourself down a little bit and, um, try to think about, you know, how you approached each patient case and kind of having that intrinsic feedback available is helpful. Yeah. And... Michael, if people want to learn more about you or your work or uh, reach out to you, is that a way that they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, LinkedIn, Michael Post um, should be on there. And I think that has my email on it as well. Um, anybody wants to email me, um, it is uh, michaelpost.penmedicine.upenn.edu. Great. Michael, I appreciate so much you taking the time to share with us all your experience. And I appreciate all your, uh, the, the papers you publish helping our profession here uh, with a topic that uh, needs very much some publications and, and help uh, 
for these PTs that are trying to <laughs> treat these patients and hopefully get more referrals. So uh, I really appreciate your work. Thanks, Marianne. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time. <music>